Good morning, good evening, wherever it may be, across the nation or around the world. Once again, you are listening to the VMware Community's Roundtable Podcast. Today is Wednesday, April 10th, and I am with my special co-host, Corey Romero. Corey, how's it going? Hey, Eric, going great. How about you? Uh, pretty good, pretty good. We got you in the studio here on the Beam. Always nice to see you uh, join us. We are on uh, uh, live streaming on Facebook and YouTube. Hey guys, how's it going? Good to see everybody. Um, I guess we're not going to get a, a color of the bay report because I don't think Corey, you've been across the bay today. I have not. That's okay. It is a sunny day here in California. We are finally getting some nice weather. Uh, it's still a little bit chilly, but uh, it's starting to warm up, so we're, we're happy about that. The rain has slowly gone away. All the reservoirs are full, so we are all filled up, ready for a great summer, and uh, let's get on with the show. On this show today, uh, we have Tim Davis, and Tim is joining us uh, to talk a little bit about uh, how to manage... Um, your expenses uh, if you're using AWS. So we'll talk a little bit about um, how to do that with Cloud Health. So, um, but before we get to that, we'll probably get to the news and talk a little bit about some of the announcements that's been happening uh, at uh, the Google conference. And Tim, I believe you're up at the Google conference in San Francisco right now, are you not? Yes, sir. Good, good, good. Uh, how, how's it going? Have, have you heard any announcements so far? I know that uh, Sanjay Poonin was uh, part of the keynote, so I think we did some Google announcements uh, going forward today. I have a couple of them. Do, have you heard anything, or do you want me to just walk through what I've heard? All right, you can absolutely go through what you've heard here. All right, great, great. Um, well, so let's see. I, I have a few notes here. I believe that we made some announcements uh, at, the, at the keynote where Sanjay went up and talked a little bit about uh, network integration with uh, Google Cloud. So we're collab collaborating around uh, SD-WAN and service mesh integrations So uh, with Anthios. So that's one of the announcements. So we're getting closer and closer to that, that true multi-cloud environment where VMware works on Azure, AWS, IBM Cloud, as well as now Google. Second one that I heard about was uh, showcasing a hybrid cloud deployment for application platform and development teams. So we've got some uh, work around there that we announced. And then we also extended VMware SD-WAN by VeloCloud into, directly into the Google Cloud environment. So uh, those are the three announcements that I think we made uh, this week. Uh, at the Google Cloud Conference. What's the name of the conference up there, Tim? Do you know what the actual name of the conference is? Yeah, it's Google Cloud Next. Google Cloud Next. Very good. Running this week. So I know that you're up there and several other people up there. So thanks a lot, Tim, for uh, uh, dialing in today and uh, bringing us uh, automation and budget checks into code develop deployment pipelines with Cloud Health. So we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. News. Uh, I went to Denver VMUG. Uh, I was at Denver yesterday uh, throughout the day, ran the, the classic uh, VMware code session where we talked about ARM, uh, showed the ESX running on ARM for fun, as well as did some IoT sessions around uh, sensors and how to get that data back up into the cloud and AWS. So 
got to meet a lot of people, had a lot of fun at uh, the Denver V-Mug, and I think I am on board to go to the uh, Wisconsin V-Mug in uh, Milwaukee uh, next week, so should should be fun to meet some more people out there, had a good time. Um, Corey, you're, uh, you're, you're with us. Uh, any, any kind of news items going on in your world with V-Experts? Yeah, I got a couple things for V-Experts. Uh, so uh, for uh, those who are V-Experts, um, we have an exclusive webinar next week. On uh, It's called uh, CloudLink, Cloud Link, and um, that will be on the 17th, so check your mail. You should have an invite for that. Um, that was sent out uh, yesterday morning, as well as we also updated. I uh, had, had a couple of the experts um, have some issues with their NSX license, and so we pushed out new licenses uh, specifically for uh, NSX on vSphere. So uh, go ahead and log into the vExpert portal and uh, look at your license. You should find your license there. And any issues, questions, you can always email me, uh, Romero at vmware.com. And, um, yeah, that, that's, those are the two items, new uh, news items I had for vExpert. All right, good. Um, one other thing that we should uh, we should mention a little bit is that VMworld is starting to ramp up. So we are getting closer and closer to getting everything ready for VMworld once again. It's amazing because it just feels like uh, we got done with VMworld uh, Europe in October, uh, which I think we did. Or, uh, and then we went to AWS, so it feels like it hasn't been that long a gap. But we are in mid-April, and so things are spinning up. Call for papers. There are ways to get papers in. So... If you go to vmworld.com, you can go through and look at there is speaking opportunities. They've extended the speaking opportunity to, I think, Tuesday, uh, April 16th. So you have a few more days to get paper ideas in. Uh, One of the things that we care about are the VMware code papers. Um, So VMware code papers are, are still open. We still have slots for VMware code papers. I think... We've gotten maybe 70 or 80 submissions so far, and so we're still looking for another 50 submissions. So if you've got an idea around a code topic, uh, around DevOps, around automation, vRealize automation, or Power CLI, REST APIs, or Kubernetes, uh, we, we will cover all those. Also, if you're women in engineering, um, we're looking for uh, topics that uh, women have. Uh, we're always looking for increasing the audience and giving women in engineering an opportunity. So we have some slots open for those as well. In fact, we're going to have a, a three-day conference for code uh, embedded in the VMworld conference. And one day is dedigna- designated to the women in engineering uh, group in San Francisco, uh, where we're going to have themed uh, uh, talks by women on developer topics. So we still have slots, though. So if you have an interesting developer paper, those are going to be funded uh, topics, too. So uh, you will get a pass if uh, your top if your paper is selected. So definitely get over to vmworld.com and uh, look for the, the form that you can submit uh, a VMware code paper. I think we put a link to it in the chat log. So if you come back to vmw.re slash pod, the podcast would definitely has a chat window and the chat window is saved for each podcast. You can go and we have links for some of the stuff we talk about and there is the VMworld paper submission link there on the right sidebar. That's it for the news as far as I, I know. So we'll get on with the show topic, which is automa- automating budget checks into code deployment pipelines with Cloud Health and GitLab. Uh, and with that, we have uh, our, our, our 
guest Tim Davis. Tim is a cloud native advocate or an advocate uh, uh, that that works on application, you know, deployments and advanced topics. So, Tim, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how long you've been at VMware and what you do here and what have you done in the industry? Absolutely. Um, so, I've been at VMware for uh, just about you know, two or three weeks over three years. Um, I've been in my current role as a native cloud advocate since August of last year. Um, before that, I was a uh, pre-sale systems engineer or an SE for the networking and security business unit, working on, you know, NSX and all that other stuff. Um, before that, I worked over at Dell Services as an architect for, you know, vSphere and VDI environments for one of their largest customers. Um, I, I've been a VMware guy for a long time. Um, ever since I used VMware Server 4 on a Linux laptop and spun up my first VM, I mean, it, it was cool. I was hooked. The first time I saw, you know, a vMotion, it blew my mind. Everything was great. And I've been, you know, doing stuff here ever since. But since August, it kind of shifted directions a little bit. Instead of working on, you know, the core vSphere products and stuff like that, our native cloud advocacy team works to advocate for you know, native public clouds, like your Amazon, your Azure's, your Google's, um, and really trying to, to bridge that gap. Because a lot of times when VMware has a booth, say, you know, here at Google Cloud Next or at AWS reInvent, the biggest question we get is, why are you here? VMware's legacy infrastructure, and that's simply not the case. We're doing so much for public cloud um, and in the app dev space and all that. Um, I mean, we're a software company. We're doing software you know, great ways. So working out there to try to let our customers know and let other customers know that, hey, we're not just the hypervisor company anymore. As Pat stood on stage many times, we're the multi-cloud company now. Yeah, absolutely. When I was at the Denver VMA yesterday, that was, I think, the number one question I actually got, right? I think right behind some Raspberry Pi sensor stuff, the number one question is, why are you here and why are you doing this, right? From VMware code perspective to ARM-based <laughs> processors. And you have to spend like 10 minutes explaining how many other products we have outside of just vSphere network storage and compute. We actually have a lot of different products from PKS and Kubernetes to modern applications to serverless computing to network security to all kinds of things and and uh, it takes a little bit of time for everybody to kind of warm up to that idea so yeah there you are up up there um, before you get started I'll say one other thing I did ask people or, or someone asked when we were doing the keynote in Denver there were about 300 people at the keynote um, it was pretty crowded uh, and one of the presenters asked how many of you guys in the audience have a uh, hybrid cloud environment where you're actually running services um, up up in, a, in a, a cloud environment. And there were, of the 250, there were only about seven hands that got raised saying they, they're actually looking, or they have things running in a, in a hybrid cloud environment. Mm -hmm. So it is definitely one of these spaces where you're either in the infrastructure and you're in the legacy and you're doing things in infrastructure and you, they don't call it legacy, they call it their current stuff. And then there is this other whole right. set of people that are in cloud, and it's slowly going to come together, but it's going to take a little time. And that's one thing that, like, when the whole cloud thing started to come around, um, there was in, you know, enterprise IT, we had all those silos. You were a storage guy. You were a network guy. You were an infrastructure guy. Right. Now, with all of these clouds, we've got, 
cloud silos. You've got your VMware guys. You've got your AWS guys. Now, there's a lot of companies that aren't that way, but that is kind of the way we see a lot of large companies that are starting to get into multi-cloud is that they have a whole team for each one of these things. So we're having to go through that process of breaking down those silo barriers yet again. Yeah, I definitely see that where you have cloud operations now, which are completely different than your your IT people, right? It is it is it is a different team, and there are silos that are happening. Uh, but over time, as you say, we've we've broken those barriers. Uh, storage, networking, and compute have all kind of blurred together into STDC, and and I suspect that we'll we'll do the same thing as as cloud matures. So yeah, I agree with you. You're absolutely right. We've done it once, and we can do it again. Yep, and continuing on that journey. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, cloud health and managing, you know, your your costs. It's near and dear to my heart because we're actually doing the same kind of activity now, where I've spun up a bunch of Amazon stuff, and then I turned it off, and my bill hasn't gone down. So I I, I get the topic here. <laughs> Why don't you take us through some of uh, some of uh, what we're going to talk about today? Sure. Um, so in order to get to the point of, you know, automating budget checks and stuff like that, um, we're going to kind of take a step back um, and we're going to start from square one and kind of build on here and see where where this challenge really starts coming in for some people. Um, so let's talk about infrastructure as code um, and doing things where you're, you know, building out infrastructure. You've got config files. They're going out, you know, automatically deploying. Infrastructure as code simply means instead of going out to AWS, going out to Azure, or you know even on-prem, and spinning up a new EC2 instance, manually logging in and installing stuff, you're using configuration files, and you're building out what that infrastructure should look like or how to build out that infrastructure. There's a couple of different ways that you can do that, um, and the biggest one is going to be declarative infrastructure. Um, you may have heard that, you know, declarative state or declarative something or other before. And all that means is that the configuration file simply says, at the end of the day, this is what it's supposed to look like. So instead of a script saying, spin up this VM, then install this, then install that, you simply have a config file that says, I need a server that has that. And the you know, the builder, say like a Terraform or an Ansible, will go through and say, well, I know I need a database server. I know how to do that already, so I'm going to go and build that out my way instead of using their step-by-step script. Right. And that, that is the kind of the pinnacle of doing operations these days um, is doing that as code. So what right. that kind of leads into is the thing that's called GitOps. And essentially what that means, and that was it, it was a, a phrase that was coined by a company called Weaveworks. And all they do is they're using Git for, you know, infrastructure and uh, stuff like that. So they've got all of their production infrastructure at any given point exists as a configuration file in a repository somewhere. Interesting. 
Yeah. Does that yeah. Make sense? Yeah. It made a little, little bit like a forms conversation. Um, we've seen in the last couple of years in the community okay. space, people actually just checking in and out the conversation threads into GitHub, right? Where, you know, you're mm-hmm. just using GitHub to keep track of your, your serialized form exactly conversation. Right. And that's the same thing for configuration files where people are just building templates. And then, so that they call that term Git ops. Is that what we're saying? Well, so using Git is kind of, you know, it, it's a global thing. People use Git for a lot of different things. Okay. Um, Git ops is, it, it's a term that I found when looking around, you know, reading about it, hearing about it, talking about it. It, it seems to be a very overused term in the industry. Okay. Because it was, the, the term was coined by Weedworks to specify how they do operations. Now, there's a lot of people out there that say, oh, I use, you know, Paraform, and I'm going through and I'm making my configurations, and I put them into GitHub. That's GitOps. Well, that's not really the case. GitOps means that you are using Git as the single source of truth, so at all times, what's in Git is what is in production. It goes through, and you do updates by what's called a pull request. So you essentially go into Git and you say, I want to make a change to these files, and it checks them out to you. You make your changes, and you do what you need to do, and then you go and you submit it back. Now, somebody's going to go through, and depending on how you have your deployment pipelines set up, mm-hmm. that could either automatically push off a, you know, a pipeline, which is a lot of people think of it as a CICD pipeline, and with that, it'll go through, it'll check the code, make sure that it's clean. It'll do a build of that environment. It'll do a test to make sure everything's good. Then what's going to happen is it's going to shoot it off possibly for, a, um, for an approval. This person wants to make this change. We've done a build. We've done a test. Everything's good. Do you want to push this to production? If that person approves it, it's going to do what's called a merge. And it's going to push that file into the master branch. That master branch now exists as the single source of truth. So then a pipeline is going to automatically go out and make the changes to the infrastructure. It's going to do the rebuild. It's going to do the test. It's going to do the deploy. And all of a sudden, your infrastructure, as it exists in the Git repository, now exists in production. Who's so you do- essentially I, I, are doing... Yeah. I missed who's what, doing ahead, that. What, what service or what software is actually doing the workflow? Uh, I get it's in Git. What's, what's actually sure. doing that workflow? Well, so Git is just the repository. Yeah, right, got that. Where you're yeah. storing those config files. Right. The pipelining tool, there's tons of different ones. Okay. Um, so, for example, we, we have a pipelining tool for CICD, and it's called CodeStream. Got it. That's ours. Right. There's um, lots of other ones out there, like Spinnaker, like Jenkins. Um, all they do is it's just basically the process workflow that says, when somebody checks in code to this repository, what do I do? I go through and I check the code, and I run a code check. Great. That passes. I go through and I do a build. Yep. Once that code's built, I go ahead and test that out. Does it work? Yes. Then go ahead and you know do what you want to do. So it's just kind of a process automation. Tool. So most of these tools now are integrated with Git. In order to do that, right? Like I know, I know CodeStream, Lots I, I know Jenkins are. and those, so they, they actually do that. Okay, got it. Yep, and you just essentially set a little API call back and forth, like if you're using GitHub. Um, you set up an application webhook, and essentially whenever somebody pushes to that repository or checks code in, 
it automatically executes whatever pipeline you've set up for it. Got it. Now, there's some play, uh, some Git, because Git, there's tons of different types of it. I mean, you can just do Git on your local machine. You could go to GitHub. You could do a Bitbucket. You could use a GitLab. They're all kind of the same concept, just done from somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Just These now, are just various Git repository strategies. Yep. Exactly right. Now, places like GitLab and GitHub have their own CI/CD pipelining tools built right into the platform. Um, GitLab calls it, you know, uh, GitLab DevOps or GitLab CI/CD, and then GitHub has GitHub Actions, where you can set up pipelines directly built in and, uh, you know, linked up to the repository itself. So they kind of make it a little bit easier, so that you don't have to go through and bring your own tool like a Jenkins or something like that. Right. And it's fascinating because all of this back when I was an engineer in development teams, it was all just the release engineer's job, RE job, to actually just do the nightly builds, use iMake files or make files to, to make all this build. And then we had just deployment scripts that would just deploy in the local development team. Now we've just integrated that all into Gits, and you, you still check in your deployment scripting or your deployment tools that use config files for the deployment actions. Uh, but now instead of just deploying into your local development team, team, you know, uh, lab, you're actually, you can deploy all the way up into production with workflow. Exactly right. And it's funny. So I'm, I'm working on a, a Java project for something that we're doing. And rather than go and set up a CICD pipeline, because I was trying to do it in a hurry, I simply created a manual build process in my head and wrote out a tiny series of commands that I would copy and paste and run to do the build and test. And that's a perfect example of what you were just saying. In old times, it was a manual process. Somebody ran that build. You had a script that did this. Well, all the CICD does is it kind of puts it together, and it runs it for you, and then it uses a trigger. So instead of having to go and say, I want to do this process now, it uses a trigger to say, well, I'll just do this process every time somebody checks in code to this repository. So it does everything for you and kind of takes that human element for release engineering and makes it a repeatable process through that pipeline. And you use the acronym CICD. Uh, you want to say what that is? Yes. So that's continuous integration and continuous either delivery or deployment. Um, there's a couple of different things for that. Now, continuous integration is simply saying if you've got a bunch of people that are working on different you know, disparate pieces of code, when they are done and they want to check it in, you need a way of making sure that code all kind of stays together. So that's going through making sure everything's built and put together. Then you've got the CD, the continuous deployment, continuous delivery, that's actually going through and pushing that out. Got it. Now, there's CICD. A lot of people say CICD tool when they're talking about a pipelining tool. Right. CICD is really the process. The pipeline tool is the actual tool to do it. So if you ever hear CI/CD tool, uh, they're pretty much just talking about a pipelining tool. Right. Got it. CodeStream, others out, are out there. Exactly right. Okay. And I'll, I have to say, our CodeStream tool, if you've never used or done CI/CD, you've never used a pipelining tool, I actually think that's one of the best ones to start with. Because if you move to a Jenkins or something like that, it's really difficult because you're building these pipelines via a script. And it's kind of hard to visualize if you're new what that pipeline actually looks like. Now, with CodeStream, 
It's just a window, kind of like a blueprint in VRA, and you're just clicking and dragging stages and tasks so that you can really clearly visualize what that pipeline is doing. Right. Yep. Yep. Okay. So this, uh, everything we've kind of talked about here, you know, we've got our code, we've gone through, we've automated this pipelining process. We've gone through and we've got code that can be built and tested and deployed. And then we come up to the issue of how much are we paying for this? Like you said, you have an AWS account, you spin a bunch of stuff out, and, you know, it starts costing you money. If you stop using it, AWS isn't going to say, oh, hey, we're not using this anymore, or you're not using so I'm just going to shut it for you so you stop paying for it. Um, right. So, you know, you, you, you can kind of out of control. Yeah, and does does so AWS actually does AWS when you when you stop using it unless you actually turn the VM off or turn whatever the service is off off? I get the impression they just don't start they don't stop charging you, right? Um, I'm sure they have some usage oh, kind of charges, not. but 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 that's what I've experienced. Where even though if you shut it, you know you haven't deployed there or you think you've shut it down, uh, I'm not sure what the process is to actually know that it's actually no longer billing you for it. So there's actually, I mean, if you don't completely terminate it and delete it and it's gone, you're still paying for it most likely. Now, there's like I.O. charges and stuff like that that you're not going to be accruing, but normally there's certain charges. Um, the weirdest one that I saw was there was a, a company that was out there that had gone, deployed a bunch of stuff, and then they went and cleaned up a bunch of things. They even deleted instances and stuff like that out of the environment, Right. but they're still paying a bunch of money what they found out was that they had a bunch of static or elastic IPs assigned to these boxes and they deleted the instances, but the static IPs were still showing up in their network settings. Now with Amazon, if you're utilizing an IP address, it's free. If it's just sitting there being unused and just wasting, they're going to charge you for it. So this company mm. was paying for an IP address that they weren't even using. Yeah, that's what I've experienced on my so side. That, is we we shut a bunch of stuff down and we're still getting billed. So we are we're going back through and trying to audit now and figuring out how do we have things still charging us even though we've shut some of the stuff down and it's deleting the instances or doing other things. And I can imagine when you're doing kind of nightly builds or deployment builds using uh, Git GitOps um, that that this could get very expensive quickly and get hard to manage. Absolutely, and that's why we've been working here for a little while, and uh, I've, I've been working to build this process where we're essentially injecting a step into the CICD pipeline process where before it actually goes out and deploys that new infrastructure, it's simply reaching out to the tool that we're using now is Cloud Health. It's saying, hey, how much money have they been spending? It returns a value. And we come through and say, well, this is what our budget is. Is this more or less than what you're using? If it's less, then good. Go ahead and deploy it, and you're all set. If you're over budget, we're going to fail that pipeline out because we don't want you deploying anymore when you're over budget. You need to go through and figure out and fix that before we let you put anything new in there. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And and even having just some thresholds, right? Right. Defining what your budget criteria are. It's almost like defining what your where your shares of compute resources going to be to the workloads you do when you're running VMs, right? In vSphere, it's the it's that same concept of being able exactly to manage right. how much compute resource everything is going to use, and then not overusing just because somebody wants to build something overnight. Exactly right. And it, it's pretty cool how we've done this. Um, you know, Cloud Health's got a ton of APIs available, so we were able to pretty easily script in Python a script that goes out to Cloud Health, says, hey, what's my total budget on this project? It returns the value. Then we got the value set where we say, eh, it's 100 bucks. If we're over 100 bucks, fail the pipeline. If we're over 100 bucks, go ahead and deploy it. Right. And we've got that as a stage. So when you're doing pipelining, you have stages. And you could have, you know, build, test, deploy, and what have you. Well, we've essentially just put a stage at the very beginning called pre-check. That pre-check pulls up a container that's running Python. We download the Python script from the Git repository. It executes the script. And then if it's over budget, it creates a file called overbudget.txt. Now, what we do is we actually have the pipeline to pick up what's called artifacts. So when you're running through and you're doing all this build test and certain files are created and stuff like that, those files that are created are called artifacts. And we can actually take and pull those into the pipeline. So we have this overbudget.txt file that's been created. And we have the pipeline say, I want you to pull that file for me. Now, if that file exists in the next stage, that next stage fails. If that file doesn't exist, then it's not over budget, and it go ahead and pushes through the pipeline. That's neat. When you say we, are you talking code stream, or what, 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 what are you using for your CI/CD? Oh, yeah. So, so for this, we're specifically working with GitLab to okay. test this out. Um, so we've got all of our files inside of the repository that we're using. Um, to push out our infrastructure. We've also got the Python script in there, and then we're configuring GitLab's CI-CD tool through with a little YAML file that we have inside of the repository. And the the way that GitLab does that is actually, it's really, really slick. You just simply put a a file called, you know, .gitlab-ci.yaml inside the directory, and it automatically creates that pipeline for you based on that YAML configuration. Um, Now, another feature that they have, which is pretty slick, if you don't put that file in there, you can turn on something called Auto DevOps. Now, what it's going to do is it's going to scan that repository, and it's going to start looking for file types. Is this a Java application? Is this a Python application? Is this PHP or HTML? And it's going to automatically try to build a pipeline of build, test, and deploy based on what kind of files are in there because it knows if I'm a Java file or if I'm Java files, I'm going to need to go through and do, say, a Maven build or something and push it out. Um, So it's really, really cool and smart how it is where it can try to automatically build a pipeline for you based on what's in there. Nice. Now, it, it, it's not perfect, but it works pretty well. Right. So, okay, got that. So um, now where you're obviously doing this to kind of 
understand how it works with cloud health. Uh, you've extended that, you've integrated. Uh, where would somebody go, you know, take a look at what you've done? Are you guys publishing this anywhere? Do you guys have blog articles where you're talking about it? Uh, you're obviously coming on the podcast talking yep, about absolutely. it. So it must be something you want to get out there <laughs> with the GitHub integra GitLab integration with Cloud Health. So I am working on this write-up as we speak, um, and it should be out here pretty soon. It's going to be on our cloud advocacy site, which is cloudjourney.io. Okay. All right. Cool. So you are going to publish this, and this is just kind of a, almost like a project that you've, you've worked on with GitLab and GetHealth where you can actually mm -hmm. then do the automated budget check before you do your code deployment pipe, full pipeline. Uh, Absolutely right, because that's a very common use case of I need to deploy something, can I afford it? Or somebody who's in finance who says they keep trying to deploy stuff that they can't afford, I want to put block in there. Right. Uh, it's very common out there. So we're kind of showing you how that works in a real-life process. So APIs that you're using, are, the, are you wrote this in a, a Python uh, app that, that goes off and runs when, when you're doing this and you consume... Cloud Health APIs and GitLab APIs, or does GitLab just run it and you yep. just, yeah, take me through that? Nope. So it's, so what that looks like is we have a Python script, Python, and that's just right. dumped into the repository. All that Python script does is it goes through and it makes the API call, it returns the value, and then it checks that value against the budget. Now, the way that we run that is through the CICD pipeline. So we have a container that gets pulled down. So I custom built a container with all of the tools that we needed for this deployment. So it's going to put Python in the container. Um, it's got GSUtils so it can push out to um, GKE, which is where we have our stuff deploying to. And it's also got kubectl in there so that we can do the Kubernetes stuff. Um, now Recording it's that container and it, and it runs that container. Then what it does is it clones that script from the repository into the container, which has Python libraries on it, and then it goes through and it runs that script. So that's kind of how we're doing that execution. Then it keeps that container loaded, and if it passes when it goes to the next step, that container has all of the tools that it needs to go out and deploy our application into Kubernetes on GKE. Great. Great, great. Just a note, uh, I will be pulling down the Facebook live stream and getting the audio and replacing it up into TalkShoe. So if you're listening to the recording um, in the first hour of this show, you'll probably get a very abbreviated recording, but uh, I'll have that fixed in uh, about an hour. So there you go, because we just heard a recording started, which means we will pull the recording from Facebook and then re-upload it into the podcast. So go back and re-listen re to this. If you're hearing me say this, in fact, you probably want to re-listen to this uh, an hour from now. Uh, all right, thanks, Tim. That makes sense. So now I kind of understand uh, what you've built, how to go get it, which is you're going to do a blog article on it. Um, 
can, you can obviously extend this um, to do other things. You're obviously checking for overcost. I, I can imagine where uh, Cloud Health has some APIs that can also, you know, do some work. I would like to write something that just says, you know, go shut some of this stuff down after a given date. Have you looked into kind of what else you can do with Cloud Health APIs? I know this wasn't kind of on your topic, but I could see this being kind of interesting mm -hmm. to expand my pipeline to be able to use Cloud Health to automate controlling how much I'm spending by shutting down and doing other tasks. Right. So there's actually a blog article that I think is already out on our cloudjourney.io site. Uh, not written where we were essentially going out and checking and finding what we called zombie instances. So what this is doing is it's going out, it's checking our environment, and with cloud help and Wavefront integration, you can actually see what a VM is doing and what that CPU and memory and everything looks like. So we're going through and we've set a threshold of, say, you know, 5% CPU or something like that, and we're just going out and saying anything that's under this threshold means that really nobody's using it, so we're going to go ahead and shut it off so that we're not paying for it anymore. Nice. Right. Yep. Yep. I can I can definitely see that. And this is this is getting into the, you know, the IT IT ops space where this is where we're trying to shift when I talk to people about VMware code and what is VMware code about? VMware code is absolutely about taking IT practitioners and moving them into the automation space because as we get you know, further and further down the road of hybrid cloud, these are the type of tasks that uh, IT practitioners are going to have to start to engage with where you're going to be provisioning servers less and you're going to be provisioning workloads to provision ca capacity already. And your job shift is going to be, you know, in this space of automation and control of infrastructure as opposed to setting up infrastructure. So it is an, it's an interesting topic for everybody to kind of pay attention to. Absolutely. Yeah. Nice. Um, so you're you, you guys are you know spending time here um, working on these 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 things. Um, are there interesting places you're going to end up going in uh, 2019? Uh, probably going to be at VMworld talking about this stuff. Are there other places that you know? Mm -hmm. Obviously, you're at Go the Google Cloud Conference, right? Where you're starting to have these conversations because I would assume that this you know. You can deploy into AWS. You might be able to deploy into other cloud environments. Uh, where, where, where are people going to learn this type of stuff? So that's a great question. And the first answer I have for you is going to be the deploying to Kubernetes and VMware with Spinnaker Code Meetup on April seventeenth. Nice. Where's that at? <laughs> Uh, that's going to be there at the uh, the Prom C area there at the uh, the VMware headquarters. Oh, nice! Uh, that's going right. to be Dan Ilson from our team who's going there to do a uh, a meetup. Very good, right? So we have a uh, a meetup at Prom that we will live stream as well. So we'll put that on the agenda so people can go watch that uh, and and get plugged into this activity. Are there mm -hmm. industry conferences around this like that people go to? I mean, there are DevOps kind of uh, conferences oh, that, that happen throughout the year as well, I assume. So a big one that we've been, you know, working on submitting papers to and, you know, getting set up to go to are the DevOps days events. Right. Um, now there's a chunk of those all over the place. Um, there's one in Houston, one in Austin. Um, there was one, I believe, in Seattle, if I'm wrong. There's one in Indianapolis. 
Um, these that are just general DevOps community focused, um, not specific tooling or branding. Um, they like to be very clear that there are no sales pitches to be had. So if your talk that you submit is basically a giant commercial for your product, not going to get approved. Um, they mm-hmm. want to know about tooling, what you've been doing, what you, you know, like a case study of what went wrong and how you fixed it. Um, very, very cool environments that bring in a whole slew of people. Um, there's also, you know, AWS community meetups pretty much in every major city. Um, Dev, but DevOps Enterprise Summit has one in EU and one here locally in the U.S. that's going to be coming up. Um, so we're, we're pretty much getting out there to a ton of different places where we fully expect to be asked the same old question of why is VMware here? Right, and it, it does come into... Uh, a little bit of competition and cooperation, even in our own product set, right? Because you have cloud health. It's a true multi-cloud, cloud kind of environment. You have vRealize automation. Uh, uh, you have CodeStream. These are ways to do a lot of the automation, right, for for DevOps kind of roles. Mm-hmm. And yet... If you look at cloud health, cloud health also will work with Chef Papa Jenkins. Um, you, you're you're working on you know the ability to do it uh, with GitLab. Um, so there there is kind of this space where there's multiple approaches to solve these problems. There's multiple tool sets, and VMware owns like three of them that you could do different ways of handling this, this these issues, right? And so uh, it is interesting to watch us as we mature try to figure out you know how to do you know marketing and presentations and bringing people along with the journey when in fact we have multiple ways of solving these problems and and it's so we while we do have a ton of different ways and they do kind of overlap a little bit um, most of these solutions are driven towards specific environmental use cases so the vrealize stack is the best in breed for on-prem you know ops management and automation cloud health Cloud health is the best in breed for public cloud. So, you know, getting these two together under the same roof, having some cooperation and everything like that, we're, we're going to end up with the best of breed solution for true multi-cloud management, whether it be on-prem, uh, you know, hybrid cloud up in BMC, right. or true multi-cloud utilizing a public cloud. Right, right. Um, I had a meeting, as it turns out, I was in the Denver airport flying back from the VMUG meeting uh, at five, and I had a great meeting with the IBM cloud people, right? And just talking about how we can do some community work with the IBM cloud people, we do community work with the AWS cloud people. Um, Just curious, uh, when we're talking about this in cloud health and this strategy, do you guys get into multi-cloud? Do you get to the Google Cloud? Does cloud health, where does cloud health actually run? We know, obviously, we were managing uh, AWS workloads. Does does cloud health and some of this stuff apply to like an IBM cloud or a Google Cloud? So Google Cloud, yeah. I mean, cloud health has tabs for Azure, AWS, Google, and then it has the data center tab. And that's going that data center tab is going to be your, you know, on-prem vSphere or really any hybrid cloud. Um, VMware recently kind of changed our nomenclature around and, you know, wrote it in in stone. Hybrid cloud means vSphere anywhere, whether it be on-prem or in like an IBM cloud or something like that. If it's 100% vSphere, even if it's up like that, it's hybrid cloud. And then there's multi-cloud, which brings in that native public cloud. 
So the data center tab within cloud health is where you're going to get that hybrid cloud information. Yeah. Say that again. So our hybrid cloud definition is multiple vSpheres or vSpheres in multiple locations or vSphere on-prem and vSphere off-prem. What is, say that one more time. Yes. So a, a hybrid cloud will be all vSphere. So you've got vSphere on-prem, then you have like vSphere in IBM cloud or VMC on AWS solution. If it runs all vSphere, it's hybrid cloud. Hybrid cloud. Okay. Got that Multi-cloud one. Multi-cloud means you're bringing in that public cloud. So you've got, say, you know, even if you have a mixture of VMware on-prem, VMC on AWS, if you're putting any public cloud in there, like AWS, Azure, or Google, I got it. that's going to be multi-cloud. So multi-cloud might not contain vSphere then. Exactly. If you have just right. the big three in public cloud, right. to us, that's still multi-cloud. Right. Yeah. Multi-cloud versus hybrid cloud. Hybrid cloud wouldn't necessarily contain vSphere. You're running workloads uh, out in a, a hybrid cloud environment. You might want to bring those workloads back into vSphere, et cetera. So that is our definition. Do I get that right? Yes, sir. All right. Good. Good, good to know. I see the differentiation, right? Because you do definitely have workloads that are running out on AWS that are not running on vSphere, but yet we have products that actually address that. So that's the hybrid versus multi is just you got vSphere everywhere and you just got clouds in different places and you're managing them through those, those tools. Makes sense. Got it. Thank you for that. Um, where can people find you? You mentioned your blog, which I, I don't remember. We should put it in the chat window. Um, and then, uh, where else can people go learn about this? Do we have some HOLs? Do we have an HOL on cloud health yet? I'm not even sure we do have that. I do not believe we have an official VMware HOL for that built yet, but I, I would imagine it's being done. I would imagine. Um, I'll, so. I'll definitely check into that here and, and give you an update so you can send it to people. Um, where you can find us um, at CloudJourney.io on Twitter, um, CloudJourney.io on the web for our ad, our cloud advocacy team, and I am at the Tim D on Twitter. The Tim D. Yep. Okay, got that. And uh, what are you gonna? What are your goals for 20, 2019, The rest of the year. You know, do you have any? If if everything really went well, what what would you tr- like to have accomplished? And and maybe the community can help you get there. I personally am currently working to become better in the development space. Um, you know, learning how to code in something, learning true software deployment processes how all that packaging and deployment comes together. Um, so, so my goal definitely by the end of the year is to be reasonably proficient in that. Nice, nice. It's funny because uh, when I when I went uh, was at Sun Microsystems, I was in engineering, did a lot of development on you know uh, that the operating system. I was on the operating system team, managed an operating system group, uh, and now I came to VMware, and VMware was definitely the furthest in the way away from engineering I had been in a long time, where we're absolutely doing marketing, community marketing, uh, and engaging with people, and even our IT practitioners weren't really very you know close to any kind of coding. It was basically using you know vCenter to manage your workloads and doing vMotion and all of that setup. And now I've seen kind of we started automating 
you know, scripting, PowerCLI, uh, PowerShell um, working there. Now I feel like I'm, I'm almost come back to the whole you know coding space where you're running VMware code, you're you're building a lot more stuff in code. Infrastructure is code, and uh, I, I feel like I, I can't mm -hmm. escape engineering yet again. Here we are. We're much closer than we have been. <laughs> yep. Uh, which which is fun. Well, I I feel like I'm spending a lot of time there. Right. Are you going to do a code yeah, paper? As am I, that's for sure. And Did you submit a VMware I code have paper? I submitted one, and I'm working on more. Very nice, very nice. Uh, we're, we're, we're excited about that. It should be fun. We're getting up uh, near the top of the hour. So, uh, Tim, thanks a lot for uh, you know coming on the show and talking to us. That's a cool subject. And uh, I, I, I will go check out your project and take a look at your blog article and, and see how you've done it because it's always fun to look at some code. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll go from there. And we'll transition and close off uh, the, 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 the barbecue report because um, I have a barbecue report and uh, Tony Foster's with us. And I'm not sure he has one, but because, Tim, you're on and and because you are from Texas, and we do banter back and forth on the Texas versus uh, California barbecue, uh, I thought I would I would uh, I would end with I was in Colorado and and I ran into I, I shared a cab back to the airport because if you ever been to Denver, the airport is like a fifty dollar cab ride away, and happened to come out and there was a guy there who had been at the conference. He wasn't even at our conference, uh, but we I, I got to chat with him and we shared a cab ride together and we were talking and he's from Dallas. Sounds like a Dallas. I, the only thing I know about Texas is, uh, oh, you know, that, that they have okay barbecue down there. And we were joking, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he mentioned that his favorite he's a big barbecuer um, he's, he, he, he does a pork shoulder so he does a pork shoulder and he does it in a big green egg so I guess if you're from the, the, the yeah. Texas region you know what a big green egg is right which is apparently a big ceramic uh, slow smoker so barbecue my brand new my brand new extra large big green egg was delivered by Saturday. Oh, there you go. Very so exciting. I know where he's coming from. Is it still a <laughs> is it still a virgin big green egg? Have you used it yet or you still haven't been back in town to get get to use it? I have. Yeah, I broke it in the very next day on Sunday. I did a, a three and a half pound uh, USDA prime tomahawk steak. Ooh. Um, nice. I did a three pound tri tip and I did about four pounds worth of pork belly burn ends on it. That's that's awesome, um, and it, yeah. So he you, he he does a, a pork shoulder, does a rub on it, um, and and does it for eight to twelve hours in his big green egg. So I gotta give a shout out uh, to him if I can find my notes. Uh, I got his name, so I will do a shout-out to Eric Malloy. So, Eric Malloy from Dallas, Texas, thanks a lot for sharing the cab ride with me. Had a great time talking to you, and I hope uh, that your big green egg keeps on making great smoked pork shoulder. I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to smoke a pork shoulder and see how it goes. I got my Texas barbecue rug, Mr. Stubbs, so I'll give it a try and rip it apart with my, my, my claws and have some have some great barbecued uh, uh barbecue from from dallas texas so 
Appreciate that. Tim? Now, the key to that is making sure you get it up to temperature. So as long as you get it up to about 205 degrees, you're good to go. Yeah, he, he said that he also gets his up to 700 degrees and throws steak on it and you know for two minutes, you know, each side, and then oh, yeah. shuts the lid for another two minutes, and he said it was amazing. So we started talking more about the big green egg than we did anything else. So it's a great cob ride. <laughs> They are brilliant. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. It's a, it's a Kamado style, and they are the number one name in Kamado grills, and they are fantastic. They weigh about 400 pounds, but they are awesome. Yeah, that's that. That's a, he said everybody knows of them down in Texas, so and probably everywhere else. I think Corey knows of them as well. So it's awesome. Hey, thanks a lot, Tim, for coming. Coming. Thanks, Corey. Uh, thanks, uh, Tony Foster, uh, Matt, and everybody else that joined us. Uh, appreciate it. We will be again back here next week. We are going to be talking. Thanks for the YouTube and Facebook guys uh, for for joining us. Always fun to see you. I'll jump on the Facebook and answer questions if you got some comments. Always good to see those. And we will be back again next week with some new release of V-Realize uh, Automation. So we got that team joining us, and it should be fun. A couple of mats will join us, and we'll talk about uh, v the new release of V-Realize. And until then, hope everybody has a great week. Enjoy the good weather. We're eventually going to get to summer, I'm sure, and you'll get out there and get some time to do some barbecue. And with that, it is lunchtime. Thanks a lot. <laughs>